Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 500 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. And also, you know, while you're at it, poke around the site. You can subscribe to the audio podcast of the show, or you can sign up to be notified by email when there's a new interview posted and a number of other things. Also, there's a PayPal button on the site because we can't really do this without the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. But my concept from the beginning was to make it freely available and just to grow it to the point where a certain percentage of people would feel inclined to support it, and um, we were able to devote our full attention to it. So if you feel so inclined, there's, there is that PayPal button. My guest today is Leah Cox. Leah lives in the UK. She was explaining to me up sort of between Manchester and Liverpool, northern area. And I'll just read a little bio over here. Well, first of all, hi, Leah. Welcome. Hi, Rick. Thank you for having me. Super excited and a little bit nervous. Oh, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so it's good to meet you. So here's a little bio of Leah. After graduating in French, well, we're going to do this lecture in English, but after graduating in French from the University of Exeter and working for several years in conventional jobs in London, Leah found herself deeply unhappy, struggling with feelings of depression, anxiety, and disordered eating an intense feeling of being a wrong human being and a desperation to find her purpose. Sounds like you must have been studying Camus or something when you were studying French. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't actually. (laughs) You know, the the French existentialists or whatever they were called, they were sitting around in cafes smoking galois and feeling depressed. Anyway... In 2012, she embarked on a journey of self-discovery, but even after several years of personal and spiritual growth, she found herself in all the same cycles. In 2016, through grace, good luck, and some wonderful people, Leah experienced her first true spiritual awakening, seeing through the illusion of the separate self and knowing herself clearly as the one love that we all are. For the very first time, she knew true peace, happiness, and freedom, Most importantly, the feeling of being a wrong human being left her completely. Since that time, her journey has been one of ongoing learning, integration, and unfolding. Leah works with clients one-on-one and runs online and in-person classes and workshops to support others' journeys of healing, awakening, and following the call of the heart. Known for her tender, playful, and sometimes fiery spirit, her message is simple. You're already whole. You're already worthy, and you are never, ever outside the gates of love. So, that's beautiful. I've been preparing for this interview by reading some of Leah's essays. She doesn't have a lot of, really any much videos online. This will be her first major one. But she writes beautifully, and uh, if you go to her website and start reading her blog posts and even subscribe to her blog to get notified of new ones when they come out, I think you'll enjoy reading them. I have. Now... One question pops to mind, and that is that some people might think, all right, well, it wasn't until like three years ago that you had some kind of breakthrough, and here you are already working with clients one-to-one and running online in-person classes and workshops and so on and so forth. Some people accuse spiritual teachers of jumping the gun, kind of getting into the game too soon. Uh, Have you ever met that objection, and how would you respond to it if you had or did? 
no one's ever said that to me directly, although obviously I've heard that conversation. But I've asked myself that question a lot. Is it okay that I'm doing this? But probably an important part to say is that before that breakthrough several years ago, I was already working with clients, have been working with clients since 2013, really. But just the way that I do that has changed because of my own journey. But I don't necessarily have an answer to that. I mean, I question those things all the time myself, Rick. So, yeah. What were you doing with clients pre and post breakthrough? So before it was, I guess I'd put it more in the realms of traditional self-improvement, self-development type work. Yeah. Which you had been working on with your Which I had been, yeah, which the bit that you talked about in the bio, all of those years of improvement and feeling like you were getting somewhere, but then still finding yourself in the same, oh, but I'm still not happy and still not this and still not that, so... One reason I feel okay about it, and about not only you, but a lot of people I interview, is that the premise of this show is not that I'm interviewing the most enlightened or totally enlightened people, you know, or anything like that, because I don't even know if there is such a thing. I think everybody's a work in progress. And obviously, people are at different stages of development and all. But the times seem to be such that there's a kind of a many-to-many dynamic taking place rather than someone sitting up on a dais with thousands of people, although there's some of that too, and maybe that's okay for those people, but there's some value in being able to work one-on-one and very closely with someone who is more or less a peer, you know, someone you can really relate to. I think a lot of benefit can be derived from that, and the person doesn't have to be perfect or know everything or anything else, but they can, you know, I've talked to so many people who have really benefited from that kind of relationship. Right. I really agree with all of that. And I think there's something about, you know, forget about the spiritual and all the rest of it, but just being able to sit with a human being and offer a place of real listening and non-judgment. And that in itself is so beautiful and important. And that's got nothing to do with spirituality. Yeah, it kind of does. I mean, everything has something to do with spirituality. But anyway, I know what you mean. And it's nice to be able to relate to people or to interact with people that you can relate to that have been through a lot of things you've been through and maybe found some solutions to them. And, you know, like you've been through eating disorders and various stages of self-doubt and depression and all and have worked through that stuff, at least to a great, great degree. And so, you know, other people who have been through the same thing, you could inspire them and give them hope. I like to think, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. So let's talk about more about your personal journey. The bio I read touched upon it, but, you know, what are some of the... If you were to tell your story to somebody, you're on a plane flight, you're going to be with them for a while, and they want to know about your <laughs> life, you know, how would you tell that story within reason? Mm. I mean, in terms of the amount of time we have available. <laughs> yeah, it's like an 11-hour flight to the U.S. Yeah, um... yeah you're, flying to, <laughs> you're flying to New Delhi or something like that. <laughs> So I guess the very first thing that I often kind of say as being like an opening was when I was, it was 2011 and I was still working in my job in London and I went to a yoga class actually. And that yoga class, I remember lying down in Shavasana at the end, just bursting into tears and couldn't stop crying. And that felt like the first time that I I just kind of entered this space of, that I had space actually, had space to think and to breathe and realize something was not okay in my life. 
Did that kind of take you by surprise, bursting into tears? You're like, yeah. whoa, where did this come from? Yeah, and I'm in this yoga class, and you're trying not to cry, and you're making all of those awful <laughs> cry, crying noises. <laughs> tried to relax. And- all right, so we were talking about the yoga class and shavasana and crying and stuff like that. So that was just some kind of a little mini breakthrough that took yeah, place there. Yeah, it was like a little mini experience, and then... And then when I left my job in 2012, um, one of the early things that I did was a transcendental meditation. I used to be a teacher of that for a long time. Yeah, Yeah. I know. I heard that. So that was kind of my first experience of meditation, which was really beautiful and helpful. And then at later points, I did a a Vipassana retreat and kind of went into that. And then all through that, I was just kind of reading, reading books. And I guess I felt like I was on a spiritual path. But like I said, after years of that, it also felt like somehow nothing had changed. And then the major thing that happened, I guess, was in 2016. Yeah, it was in 2016. A friend had directed me to a website called Liberation Unleashed. I've, li- I've interviewed those ladies, yeah. Right. Um, Ilona and Elena or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, they hook you up with the guides and they take you through this very simple process. So I did that and that was, yeah, like at the end of three weeks, it was just, it was just really obvious to me that there was no separate self. And it was as if I'd always known that. For me, that was really the thing that started me on a whole new path. Yeah, I was glad to hear that because... Sometimes I got the impression from people who had been involved in Liberation Unleashed that they had just kind of indulged in the intellectual understanding of it all and had mistaken that intellectual understanding for actual realization, which I think sometimes people do. They just read too many books, you know, and they get to learn the lingo and um, they can talk the talk and they start pontificating on Facebook and so on. And, but there hasn't actually been an experiential shift. But I was glad to hear that that whole, the involvement in that group triggered an experiential shift for you. Yeah, I found the, the person that I worked with was just, it was so simple and the, the, the language was so simple and it really was about just, just looking, just look and see, just look and see. And that's all it was for three weeks. And I just found that incredible in its simplicity. Um, and then after that, I, another were you still friend, doing any kind of meditation practice or anything while you're doing that? Or? Was I nothing regular? If I was nothing regular. And then after that, I sort of randomly met a Buddhist in Turkey, um, who had also been involved with liberation and least. And she hooked me up with a Buddhist friend of hers who helped me kind of go further into that looking process. And I was kind of communicating with him for a while and, yeah, and then <laughs> now I'm here. Yeah, here you are. Yeah, and you seem very happy now, and all that wrongness and self-incrimination and so on seems to have totally dropped off. Yeah, that part has... So after that experience with Liberation Unleashed, I had a period of about three weeks where I just thought everything was perfect. You know, I've made it. You know, I really felt like that. I really felt like I'm here. I've made it. Everything's done. And then after about three weeks, you know, all the normal stuff started to come back, like comparison, judgment, all the things I'd had before. But obviously with this different underlying knowing behind all of that. But the one thing that didn't come back, hasn't come back so far, is that feeling that 
yeah, like I'm just a really, yeah, rotten. Rotten is the best word I can find for it. Like right at the core, that's the one thing that's gone and didn't come back. That's good. What do you feel you are at the core now? If, <laughs> if not rotten. <laughs> if not rotten. Gosh, how to word that? Anything? Nothing? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, love is the closest word, but I just feel that I'm just the same as everyone and everything else. That It's just, there isn't a word. I don't, I wouldn't put a word to it. Okay, that's fair enough. Well... I think that your experience of, oh, I'm rotten or other negative things one could feel about oneself, there's a lot of people walking around in this world feeling that way and just mired in it, unable to escape from it. Obviously, in terms of what all the spiritual traditions tell us, they are not really, that's not really who they are. And it's, it's a shame to sort of go through life thinking that that's who you are or what you are. Um, so it's very beautiful, beautiful to wake up out of that, right? And realize you're something much nicer than that. Yeah, it is very beautiful. I mean, that, that feeling of really, you know, you don't deserve to be here. It's so painful. It's such a horrible feeling. Sure. Think how many people commit suicide or take drugs that end up killing them or, you know, whatever. Just uh, trying to blot out that, that feeling. Right. And so it sounds like that whole way of thinking has completely dissipated for you, that you, you know, just moved on. Yeah, that's just gone. It's just gone. I mean, life is still, life is up and down. There are all sorts of challenges. I feel everything, all sorts of things. But no matter what I'm feeling, I don't ever feel I don't deserve to be here. I'm wrong. I think one of the other things that came from that experience and everything since that experience is just this overwhelming compassion for myself and for everybody else. Like you just see that, you know, we're all just doing the best that we can. Like we just, that's all we're ever doing. And I really feel that so strongly. And you look at other people who are going through things and you just think, well, yeah, we can't, we can't help it. Yeah. The earth can be a challenging place to live. And so are you a full-time teacher of some sort? Or if, I don't know if you call yourself a teacher, but what you do now, <laughs> this spiritual stuff, do you do this full-time? Full-time, I work one day. I just recently started work, working one day a week in a gallery and slash shop in Lancaster where I live. So almost full-time. How many people do you work with? It totally varies. Um, at the moment, just I'm doing three. I've got three clients um, each month that I'm working with one-on-one over a longer period of time but I mean I we had some discussion or with Irene about the work that I'm offering and I feel like that is one of the fluctuating parts of my journey still I'm still trying to find my you know my way of doing that I don't feel like I've quite found that necessarily well I'm sure it'll evolve I don't know if you'll ever find it in any kind of final way you know I mean when you're 70 years old it'll probably still be evolving (laughs) yeah right Yeah, that point about discussing it with Irene, she was probably, when we evaluate somebody to interview them, uh, one of the things we look at is, you know, are they charging $600 an hour or some such thing, you know, because (laughs) that makes us feel uncomfortable. But I think Irene determined that whatever you're doing, it's very reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
a lot of people suffer from eating disorders, you know, especially I think younger women do. And um, you mentioned you went through some of that. Is there anything worth uh, dwelling on there that might help people who are who have that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm really happy to speak about it. Yeah, why don't you? Um, it might be helpful to some people. Yeah, because like you say, I feel like maybe it's the majority of people that have some sort of, you know, not quite healthy relationship with food. So, I mean, it's always difficult to say when things started, but I guess the time that I became really conscious of there being a problem was at university and then the years following university. And I went through a long period of very restricted eating. Meaning what? Very, you thought you couldn't digest anything and you were like... Just really controlling what I was eating. So eating very small amounts and even that felt like too much, you know, we shouldn't have eaten that. So just really restricting the amount that I was eating to control, you know, to make myself thinner or to feel better about the way that I looked or, you know, I can't whatever. imagine you ever being overweight. You don't look like this. <laughs> I don't think I ever, I mean, I never really was overweight. Or perhaps I'd like slightly rounder cheeks or whatever, but um, yeah, so... I went through a period of really, I mean, I remember, I remember being in France with my partner at the time and he would slice up an apple for me in the evening and I'd have like a slice of apple and a yogurt and that would be my dinner. <laughs> it's so ridiculous thinking about it now. But And then I went through a really, really long period of, of binge eating. So just eating everything in sight and eating rubbish and then the cycles of feeling awful about that and then thinking I'll never do that again because I feel so sick but then doing it over and over and over again. I actually went through a similar phase back in the 70s. I was on courses in France and I guess mostly France. And I went through this whole fasting phase, you know, because I thought it would purify me and help me get enlightened faster and so on. And then after doing a whole lot of fasting, really crazy stuff, I got down to, I don't know, 120 pounds or something, which is light for me. Then I just got into this whole binge eating thing and I'd end up looking pregnant after a meal because I'd eaten so much I couldn't stop myself. So it took it took a long time to get balanced and integrated again. Right. Oh, well, you'll have to tell me about how that happened for you then because it'll be interesting to compare experiences. For me, I feel like what's happened is that I have never... I've never really put a focus on fixing that problem, but through this journey of spiritual awakening, you know, whatever you want to call it, the need for that or the desire for that has just fallen away gradually, gradually, gradually. And that whole compassion piece, I think, has been really important as well, because when that was still happening, when I was turning to food, that could happen, but instead of there then being that whole beating yourself up part, there was compassion for that happening and not kind of fixating on the awfulness of it. But okay, well, that's, that's happened. That's, that's okay. And just letting the process happen is what it has felt like to me. Well, you know, that to which we give our attention grows stronger in our lives. And here I was doing this six-month meditation course where I was meditating most of the day. And yet I was reading food books and about fasting and all this stuff. And I just became obsessed with it. I have a tendency to become obsessive. And, uh, you know, that became my focus, which is ridiculous. I should have been totally focused on the, the deeper value of what I was doing. Uh, so I think I, I, the problem eventually dissipated when I just stopped putting my attention there. It just wasn't that important or interesting for me to put my attention on. It was just this obsession I got into for a while. 
And, yeah. you know, now I just don't think about it. My wife serves me nice meals or I, I eat decent stuff and it's not that big a focus. Yeah, I relate to that as well. It, it, the thinking around it kind of just becomes less and less until it's just not a thing anymore. I mean, we can really get obsessed with things, politics or religious things or anything. People have a tendency to get nutty about stuff. And again, that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. So there's a principle, highest first. Put your attention on what you consider really to be the highest and and don't get sidetracked by stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever been suicidal back in those days? I've definitely, I was just... Thinking about it or... Yeah, I was just, I sent a message to a friend about this just last night, actually. I definitely have had suicidal thoughts. But what I said to him was that I don't know how serious I ever was. I think I would have been too scared to follow. I wouldn't have known how to follow through. I think I wouldn't have known what to do. But definitely I had those thoughts of, oh my goodness, I don't want to be here anymore. This is too, this is too much. It's too hard. But how serious they were, I... I don't think I was at a point of... Yeah. Well, I bring that one up because there's another example of something that young people go through sometimes, and many of them actually take action on it. And if we can discuss it for a minute and save a life, great, because you're an example of somebody who went through hard times emotionally and in terms of your self-image and stuff and came out the other side a very happy person. So if I were to speak to someone who were contemplating that, I would just say, there's so much potential in life, so much beauty and wonder and ability to you know, grow into something marvelous. Don't even contemplate that, you know? <laughs> right. And yet, when you're in that feeling, you're not in that on purpose, are you? You can't... Yeah, you're I just can, mired in it. You can't... You, you can't. You can't see beyond yeah. it, usually. Yeah, you can't. Otherwise, people wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. If it didn't feel like the only possible solution at that moment, then I guess people wouldn't take their lives. Yeah, there's a sort of a ontological reason, too, for not doing it, which is, you know, people may not believe this, but this body is not the only one we've had or will have. And um, just destroying this one isn't going to solve your problems. You're just going to pick them up again next time. At least that's the way I see it. I had a realization when I was about 18, I had been through some difficult times over the previous years, and I just had this realization, you know, the only way out is up. It's not down through blotting out my awareness with drugs, or it's certainly not suicide, although I didn't contemplate that myself, but the only way out is up. And and if you just keep kind of ascending the ladder of, of evolution, there's, you know, glorious possibilities. So that should be the focus. Right. I would love to know, you must have spoken about this on many of your previous interviews, but I would love to hear a little bit about your experience with drugs. Well, I've spoken about it on too many of them probably, but um, you know, I was a teenager in the late 60s, which was the, the heyday of, of the psychedelic era, and I experimented with that stuff for about a year, you know, did, did acid a number of times and marijuana just about every day and so on for a period of about a year. And by the end of it, the upside of it was it made me realize there was more to life than meets the eye and that your perspective is everything. I mean, the way you actually perceive the world, if you can alter that for the better, that's more pivotal than just trying to alter the world. As someone said, it's easier to wear shoes than to pave the earth with leather. But that way of going about it, for me, 
was, although I had those little glimpses of, and realizations, was destructive. And after a year, I had dropped out of high school and gotten arrested a couple of times and was starting to mess with hard drugs like heroin. And, um, you know, I just had this epiphany one night that I was going to destroy myself if I continued along that path and that I needed to quit it and learn meditation and just take a higher path. And so that's what I did. And yeah. things turned around pretty quick. Wow. I really love, yeah, I love talking to people and hearing about people's experiences with addiction, drugs, all of all of those things, because I feel like I just meet so many people now in kind of similar experiences. And I think the more people you have as reference points that have kind of, they've had something change in their lives, it's just really, it's helpful, I think. Yeah. Even then, I, I had the sort of the vague, you know, and my thinking was pretty muddled, muddled, but I thought, you know, the body is kind of, it's like if you have a car and you dump dirty, polluted, cheap fuel into it, then you're going to ruin the engine. And I thought, my body is like a vehicle and through which I'm living life. And if I put this crap in it, I'm going to damage it, and I may end up living my whole life in a damaged vehicle. So I thought, well, got to change that <laughs> before I do some irreparable harm to myself. Yeah. And I loved your point as well, which is not something that I think about often about, you know, if you get rid of this body, you're just going to pick up the same things in another body. And um, yeah, I loved hearing that. Yeah. All right. Well, here's a nice question. This, this question came in from someone named Bhavna in Dallas, Texas. This will get us going on an interesting topic. She said, Leah, I have noticed you talk a lot about trusting the universe and our experiences being tailor-made for us. On the other hand, many teachers talk about life just happening without meaning and that we create illusory meaning and stories ourselves that have no basis in reality. This feels like somewhat of a paradox. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, that it is a paradox and that I feel that both of those things are true. That life is just happening and that everything is happening for us. And not for us, because life is, life is just happening for itself, which equally means for us, but it's not for us, the personal us, exactly. And I just know that in my experience, or maybe it is, maybe I just convince myself that this is, maybe it serves me to, to think this way, but to think that anything that shows up in life is an opportunity feels in service to me. And feels like a much easier way to go through life than to think, well, this is this is a shit thing or, you know, whatever. But I think that word paradox, I mean, that word paradox is just everything on the spiritual path, as far as I can see. It's just both all the time. Everything is a paradox. It's this and it's that. Yeah. I use the word so often that somebody once sent me a T-shirt with the word paradox on it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot depends. I mean, obviously, the truth doesn't depend on our perspective. If let's say we we were firmly convinced the Earth is flat, that doesn't flatten the Earth. The Earth is what it is. And so, if we happen to perceive life or the universe as completely meaningless and dumb material stuff that's random and accidental and so on, that might be our perspective. But that doesn't actually make it so. It's just one of those less than edifying, inspiring perspectives that people choose or that they get stuck in. Hearing you speak, just that word meaningless has been one that's been kind of quite important for me, I suppose, in 
maybe the last six months because I feel like there was this realization that that life doesn't need meaning in order for it to be meaningful. So I kind of simultaneously experienced that there isn't a meaning as such, and yet it's full of meaning as well, which is just really saying the same thing. I think I know what you mean, and tell me if this is what you mean, and that is that the universe doesn't have to fit itself within the the dimensions of the human intellect. So there, there's a mystery to it that might uh, exceed our, our capacity for rational understanding. So it doesn't need to be meaningful in that way. But there's a, a deeper, sort of more mystical meaning, you could say, or a, a sort of a fundamental purpose, purposefulness or intelligence to the whole thing that we can intuit either dimly or even cognize quite clearly. And we might not even be able to articulate it in words, but it's profoundly meaningful. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, Rick. And I think you've articulated it very well. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people knock concepts, you know, they say, oh, you're just conceptualizing or something. But everything we say by way of communication is through using concepts, every word represents, it's a sound that represents a concept, and that's how we communicate. And we try to find words that pertain to shared experiences. You know, like you mentioned an apple earlier. And if someone had never eaten one, the word wouldn't be very meaningful. But most of us have, and therefore when you say apple, I know what you mean. And I can imagine what it tastes like, and so on. Um, And that's true also of spiritual ideas. Even God, I mean, some people, that's a meaningless word. Other people have a deep enough experience that they, it means something to them experientially. Right, right. Yeah, that's another really interesting word as well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, in pursuit of her question a little bit more, uh, this idea of um, the universe guiding us and things not being capricious or arbitrary, I took some notes, and there are various points at which you write about this. I love hearing things that I've written reflected back to me because I never know whether I'll remember it or not. Well, here's a little bit. You, you did a, um, one of your blog posts was entitled, Trust Everything Because, and I excerpted from that the following little quote. You said, I have come to see that my ideas about life and the way I would like it are quite puny indeed in comparison to the majestic ideas of the universe. Trust everything, for there is nothing that is not your path. So can we really trust everything? Whatever is happening. There's a great story in which the punchline is, everything God does is for the best. And this guy goes through all these travails and ends up getting thrown in prison, but it ends up actually saving his life because he was in prison. And the guy who threw him in prison came to apologize because he realized he did so unjustly. And the guy said, hey, everything God does for the best. If I hadn't been here in the prison cell, I would have been killed. It sounds glib when you say that to people who are really going through terrible times, like their child just died or something. How would you defend that idea, if you would, under such circumstances? Well, I don't know about your experience, but when I look backwards in retrospect, there isn't anything that I can find in life that I wish hadn't happened or that doesn't now feel like it was part of you know, that it was just fine. It's okay that it was there. And if that's true of everything that's already happened, which has been wildly like this, 
then why would that not be true of everything else that's that's to come? And like you say, of course, you know, when you're in those really, really, really challenging times, it's not always possible or easy to feel that way or to perceive it that way. But I don't see how we can ever not be on our path because that's life. Life is the path and that's whatever happens. Yeah. I remember one time I said to my mother, I said, um, Mom, don't ever feel bad about anything you did while you were raising me because I'm really happy with the way my life is turning out. So whatever you did must have been good. <laughs> she really liked that. It's like a paradigm thing. you know. If your paradigm, if your understanding of the world is that there is a deeper intelligence and that there is an evolutionary purpose to the universe and trajectory to it. And if all the beings in the universe are, you know, being shepherded along toward higher and higher expressions of their divine nature, then although it may not be completely obvious why all the things in our lives have happened as they have, you can at least say, okay, well, I just trust that all this was meant to happen. I don't exactly see why I had to live with an alcoholic father or something, but Nonetheless, I trust that, you know, God knows what he's doing and that everything is in the big picture in service of evolution for all being, for all people. However, if you don't have that underlying assumption and it's not necessarily obvious to everyone, then life could seem very cruel and, um, and arbitrary and meaningless. So maybe one question is, how can we instill within ourselves and help others to instill that kind of perspective? Yeah, I'm terrible at articulating the answers to these questions because for me, it's all a feeling. It's all just wrapped up in this feeling of this continuous unfolding journey. How can people that, enliven that feeling within themselves? What, is there anything you could advise that would help them do that? Well, if I just go off my own experience, which I would say that it's just been about following what comes up in the moment. So, for example, you know, my friend pointed me to Liberation Unleashed, so I had a feeling that, and I went there, and then this book came up and that book came up. And so for me, it's really just about being in your own process and trusting your own process that it's going to bring you to the understanding of who you really are through whatever it is that it's going to speak to you. And over time, that trust deepens. I don't know. I mean, for me, it's been that way. It deepens over time. But I couldn't sit here and say, this is the way to kind of instill that paradigm, because I think it's unique to everybody, the way people come to all these things. So maybe someone's going to watch this interview and hear something that sounds right to them or maybe they're going to watch another one and it will be a completely you know like a, a different direction but with the same message that makes sense it does i suppose that like trust in anything the trust deepens if you gain experience which you know reinforces it it's like learning to ride a bicycle or something you know you're really scared at first that you're going to fall off and then as you get better at it you trust that you won't I don't know, maybe that's not a good example, but there are many things in life where if we try something and it, it pans out, we do it again and it works out, you know, after a while we begin to almost take it for granted that we can do those things and it's going to work out. In terms of what we're talking about, 
if you follow your intuition and it turns out to be valid and rewarding, then next time you're perhaps a little bit more inclined to follow it. Yeah. I don't know. For me, something was always has always been calling me to keep going. Something knows. I think something inside you knows. I mean, for anyone listening to these interviews, like, why are they listening to them? Something inside must know that there's something there. So in a way, it's already happening. That trust is already happening within us, whether we recognize that or not, maybe. And I think everyone has it. It's just blotted out to varying degrees. In some people, it's really overshadowed. In other people, there's quite a bright glimmer of, of uh, that inner knowing. But whatever it is, whatever degree, it can always be brightened, I think. You know, you just have to keep taking steps in that direction. Or it can be dimmed further if you take steps in the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that is also okay. And maybe that is also to be trusted. And True, and maybe there's lessons inherent in that. Put your hand on the stove, you get burned. All right, well, maybe I shouldn't do that again. Right. Or like you were saying with your experience with drugs, you know, reaching that point of, you know, wow, this is ruining my body and I, you know, something has to change. And sometimes you have to go really far down, don't you, to, to have those realizations. It's true. Alcoholics sometimes talk about hitting bottom, you know, and then, then they realize that, they can't do it on their own. They need to seek a higher power or something bigger than themselves in order to, yeah. to, to make it. Well, maybe we've covered that point, do you think? Great question, though. I recognize that name. I think, um, I think that lady may have recently just come across my work. Um, so yeah. thank you for the she question. Seems, she seems familiar with you. Good. And anybody else who wants to ask a question, feel free to send it in. Go to the upcoming interviews page on BatGap. There's one point that you brought up in your notes to me that you thought would be interesting to talk about. There are quite a few. I have a couple of pages here, so we're not going to run, in, run out of things. And that is awakening and the loss of personal drive slash motivation. I've been through that kind of thing myself, and it's interesting to contemplate. So let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah. Oh, I love talking about shared experiences. So actually, this is recent quite a good chunk of last year so 2018 I really yeah just had very little drive to do anything at all and I think if I didn't have the paradigm or the inner knowing that I have I could well have thought that I was depressed except that when there were things to do, I had no problem doing them. If I had calls with clients, no problem. It was everything was there was no problem with any of that. But to put extra effort in to create new things, to do anything, there was just nothing there. There was just absolutely nothing there for several months. And sitting with that was at times very challenging. One of the things that really helped me through that period was Adi Ashanti. Oh, good old um, Adi, yeah. Yeah, his speaking of that particular experience, I think, is very clear and very helpful. So that was really helpful to me in that period last year. And then it passed, and I don't know how, <laughs> but it has. 
I think, you know, there's a, uh, a transition that people have to make from ego-bound orientation where you feel like I am this and I am doing this and so on to kind of a, re- a relaxation into a much broader sense of who or what you are and who or what is driving the holding the reins of the chariot so to speak and as that transition progresses there can be a a gap period during which it's not clear which is which you know and and there can be a sort of a vacillation between one and the other you know a sense of personal control and a sense of i don't know what and eventually it all settles out what do you think about that does that resonate with your experience yeah, that really resonates. The word, yeah, vacillation is a really good word for that kind of, oh, no, I've got to do something. You know, I've got to be in control of this. Oh, no, I can't. I definitely went through several cycles of that. Oh, my goodness, I've got to do something. And then in trying to realizing that there was no energy to do anything. So just having to, you know, kind of fall back into that not doing. Yeah. What was your experience of that? Like, well, kind of like what I said, but, you know, very often I just felt like, I didn't want to be decisive or take any initiatives because I felt like I didn't want to, I didn't want it to be the I, the the localized I that was taking the initiative. So there was a tendency to go with the flow, but to the point of uh, passivity or indecisiveness. Maybe Irene will correct me on this, but it doesn't seem to to be the way it is anymore. I feel very motivated and decisive when need be. I was chatting about this with a friend the other day in an email because I had quoted a quote that said, humility is the quality of not insisting that things happen any particular way. And she said, well, you know, you've used that quote a lot, but the the main thing is if you're ego-bound, then you can't be humble and, and you can't be aligned with the, the sort of higher intelligence. I said, yeah, I think that's exactly the point because if you are ego-bound, then you tend to be insistent like that. Well, go ahead and spring off of what I just said. I think the word settling down or the phrase settling down as well really speaks to my experience. And yeah, again, I think it comes back to at that point when that happened, there was enough trust or enough knowing of what I was going through. Thanks to also, you know, hearing experiences from people like Adi Ashanti or other teachers that you're able to kind of, although it's very uncomfortable and challenging, you're able to somehow sit in that experience. Um, And like you say, now you're you feel very motivated actually um but it's a different there's a different quality to it and I definitely I mean I feel motivated happy to get up in the morning excited to get up in the morning and yet very kind of flexible in the way life is and what happens and how things happen yeah I think sometimes um it's like if our motivations are aligned with the higher purpose of what we actually should be doing, then things can go very smoothly. And we can be very determined and and ambitious and engaged and so on. And the wind will be at our back, you know, we'll get support because we're in the right groove. But if they're not aligned that way, then we can get smacked down because we're, we're trying to do what we're not supposed to be doing. And Adya is a case in point. He wanted to be a competitive bicycle racer. And he was like pushing himself to do that even after he'd had some sort of spiritual awakening. And he found himself in bed for six months. And then he finally got better and he tried to do it again. And he got smacked down again. And, you know, finally he got the message and pursued what he was more or less supposed to be doing. 
then things went more smoothly for him. Right. And in hearing that, I, what, you know, what you said really near the beginning of our conversation about, you know, should people who, who have had fairly recent experiences be sitting in this space of working with people or sharing online or whatever, in whatever capacity they're doing it. And it makes me think, you know, we're called to what we're called to. And there's an alignment in that. And I know that for me, I just, yeah, I'm just called to what I'm called to. So it just made me think of that hearing you talk about, yeah, him and his, his cycling. And then actually that's not what, that was not really aligned for him. Yeah, it perhaps had been at a certain stage and he had fun with it, but he had passed that stage and he was trying to do the old thing instead of the new thing that he was supposed to switch to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that as well, isn't it? It's like holding on to the things that you've always done. And there's something inside that knows that it's this other thing or this other direction. But yeah, moving in that direction can be really, yeah, difficult. Yeah. And he still takes vacations where he goes out mountain biking and stuff, but it's not like he's not trying to make a career of it. (laughs) So he gets away with that. (laughs) (laughs) I can really imagine him on a uh, mountain bike. Yeah, yeah, he likes to do that. So our friend Dan in London, who sends me the questions, said, I felt inspired to compile a list of spiritual paradoxes after the response to the last question. Let's play with these. He said, one, we have complete free will, and yet we have no free will at all. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I don't even know what to say in response to that. Yes, because I, on the one hand, I feel that nothing can ever be any different to how it has been that comes into the kind of judgment and compassion, you know, for other people, because I feel like nothing could ever be different to how it is or how it, you know, that action couldn't have been anything other than what it was. And at the same time, there's this feeling of choice in every moment. Yeah. I think you have to sort of be honest and true to what you actually are experiencing. And if you experience that you seem to have choice, then don't use some alibi of there being no free will to just do God knows what. I mean, there have actually been cases where people have done really egregious things and rationalized them as being, you know, there's no free will and I'm just, I'm not really the actor and this is just happening and I'm not doing it and yada, yada, yada. And meanwhile, they're doing criminal things. So you'll face the consequences for those things and then you might think twice about that philosophy. So if we feel that we have choice, exercise it. Yeah. And if you really are so cosmic that, you know, that God is running the show and you have nothing, no choice whatsoever, then fine. But don't pretend that you're in that state. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. (laughs) Yeah. Here's another one from Dan. Dan is good at paradoxes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We are completely individual beings and we're also completely unbounded. Yeah. I should be interviewing Dan here. We'll do yeah. that. Come on, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I don't have words for that, Rick. Just yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Would you concur with this? If you were to describe your experience, would it be fair to say, I'm everywhere, I'm nowhere, and I'm right here? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a human being. I don't walk around experiencing oneness all the time. I feel like a human being in a body. And I also experience that 
I am exactly the same as everyone and everything else and that it's all, you know, there's only one. Yeah. So you could say perhaps that um, there's a multidimensionality to things where these paradoxes can be resolved if, as long as we just appreciate that the knowledge or truth is different at different levels of creation and paradoxical truths can simultaneously be true in the larger basket of, of the totality. Yeah, I really like that way of putting it. I don't, black and white is very difficult these days. I feel that the space for it all to be true in its place. That's very true in physics too. I mean, there are all kinds of paradoxes and things which are, things are physical yet non-physical. They're a wave and yet they're a particle. It's not always black and white, either or. Yeah. It reminds me, um, there was a lady that once spoke to, there was a group of us and she spoke to us about, she used an example of a little heart and a big heart. Hopefully I'm going off in the right direction here. And the big heart was Muji, or, you know, or some equivalent to Muji, um, where it's, you know, we're pure awareness, we're consciousness, that conversation. And then the little heart, you know, we're the suffering and our individual experience of pain and suffering. And how if we're working with people in a kind of therapeutic capacity, or just as a friend, you know, you're just trying to help a friend or whatever, if we're just in the little heart and only stay there, then we can't ever truly come out of suffering. But if we go only straight to Muji and, you know, don't kind of give any attention or compassion to the human suffering, then that can be very damaging as well. So I guess what I'm saying, the reason that I brought that up is that those two truths of what, you know, our humanness and our suffering and the, the tenderness involved in that and at the same time we're not those things but they go together yeah a couple of things from the Upanishads come to mind one is this verse uh, which is two birds sit in the self-same tree one eats of the sweet fruit and the other eats not and just watches and get that there's a sort of the silent witness value in our experience, and there's also the engaged, active human value. And yeah. they're, they're both the two birds of our nature. And the other is related to what you just said. There's a, I forget which Upanishad, but it says, into blinding darkness go those who worship ignorance, and even into even greater darkness go those who worship knowledge. And I think what that means is that if you glom on to the absolute view and use it to dismiss relative views and values, then in a way, that's an even greater confusion than just being stuck in the relative view. Yeah. Well, it's such an interesting conversation, the relative and the absolute, and you know, the place for each of those, and, and especially from the perspective of you know, wanting to support someone through something. Because I guess there are teachers who are just, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but who are kind of more locked onto the absolute view. And then there are those who have more space for both of those, both those things. And I definitely feel like I'm 
the latter of those. Yeah. No, I actually two. avoid interviewing the former because when I start to check them out and they're sitting there saying, you know, you're not a person and nothing exists and don't do anything and you don't need to do any sort of practice because you're already enlightened and this and that. I think I don't want to, if I talk to this person, it'll be a big argument. So I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'd love to see an argument online. <laughs> um, had a bit of that with Tony Parsons, bless his soul. Anyway, <laughs> here's another paradox from Dan. There is only the current moment, yet there is also a past and a future. Yeah, that's a great one, isn't it? Because, I mean, even within the space of this conversation, I've been talking about, you know, looking back and regret and all of the rest of it. And I experienced that as part of my experience of being human. And Yes, there is only this. We're only ever in this moment. And again, I just, for me, it's not a problem. They're both, they're both true. Yeah. I'm taking a physics course right now, physics and consciousness. And so little examples are coming up from that. Like take a photon, right? From our perspective, it takes about 2 million years for a photon to get here from the Andromeda galaxy, which is our closest neighbor galaxy. But from the photon's perspective, if you could hitch a ride on a photon, which travels at the speed of light, because it is light, the trip takes place instantaneously. There's no time elapsed. And therefore, there's no space elapsed either, because if you go from here to there instantly, then here is there and there is here. So both of those are true. It's just a matter of the perspective of the observer. So again, we're talking about paradox one individual perspective doesn't necessarily encapsulate the entire truth of a thing. This physics course sounds amazing. Oh, it's great fun. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think paradox is just one of those things that you become more and more comfortable with. I don't know if that's your experience as well, but I've just become more and more comfortable with those, those opposing things. And rather than kind of struggling with them, it's like the you know like the joy and the pain. I often talk about things in nature and seasons. So I'll often have this experience, especially in spring. And there's a cemetery just by my house that I walk walk in a lot, and I have this experience of just being overwhelmed with joy by the beauty of it, and simultaneously feeling so sad that it's already leaving. It's already leaving, and. Holding those things is sometimes very challenging, but what else can you do? But you just have to kind of allow it all to be there, all of both those things, and it's strange. Yeah. Well, it's like if you walk into your house, there's a certain joy in, in coming into the house and encountering what's there, but there's also you're, you're leaving the garden, and the garden was nice too. I don't know if we have to feel pain with the change of the seasons and so on, because each thing is a, is a fresh adventure. But I guess I understand what you're saying. I often have this feeling of beauty and joy and sorrow at the same time. I often have that feeling. Yeah. Poignant. <laughs> One more from Dan. To be completely empty is to be completely full. Yeah, that's a great one. Oh, that's so good. Dan could go into the bumper sticker, the spiritual bumper sticker business. Yeah, Yeah, that. oh yeah, that would be a great little (laughs) sideline. Yeah, when everything is emptied out. So the way that I'm feeling and experiencing that phrase is 
when there's kind of that experience of nothingness and you know everything is dropped away and there's the emptiness somehow there's a feeling of being more full than there has ever been before that's what I feel when I hear that yeah and it's funny you know because the Buddhists sort of talk of emptiness shunya and the, the Hindus talk of fullness purna but I really think they're talking about the same thing it's just a sort of kind of how you look at it yeah that's a really good one There's one more wrap-up point I wanted to make about what we were talking about earlier about motivation and drive and stuff. And that is that in nature, there's a principle of least effort. That's just the way nature functions. If you, if you throw a ball or something, there are a million different trajectories the ball could take, but it actually takes the most efficient one, given the forces that are operating on it, gravity and, and air resistance and so on. It takes the absolutely most efficient trajectory it could possibly take. It doesn't do little loops or something like that for <laughs> just for fun uh, <laughs> and um i think that a lot of people function in a very effortful way in life they're not they're not aligned with that principle of least effort i think one aspect of spiritual awakening or evolution is that you become more aligned with the way nature itself functions and so activity begins to become more efficient and effortless and in the process it might feel like you're getting lazy or not putting the effort into things that you used to but actually you're just sort of beginning to work in a more smooth and efficient manner more in in sort of harmony with with nature itself yeah i really like that and i definitely have experienced and um spoken with a number of clients on that exactly that feeling of am i being lazy and kind of going through that transition because it's so foreign to be doing less in a less effortful way and we're so i mean we're so trained it seems like to you know, more effort, more, more, more. So yeah, that conversation around being being lazy, but actually it's just more natural, that's all. Well, I think sometimes people can be lazy, obviously, but uh, yeah, of I, know, I know people who just sit around a coffee shop and chat all day, and one of them is a woodworker, and you try to hire him to do a job, and it just takes forever to get the result that you, you're paying for, and yet you drive by the coffee shop, and there he is just sitting, talking to people. So there's, there's a value of being purposeful, but even a very busy person with a lot of responsibility who from the outside looks like they're really working hard. Somebody like Ama, for instance, if you know who Ama is, they're very focused and just put in many, many hours a day doing what they do. But there's a sort of a, an effortlessness to it, a sort of a, an efficiency to it, which actually makes it possible for them to work so hard, to put in, yeah. you know, to, they, don't, they don't burn up energy um, unnecessarily. Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting things, isn't it? That you can actually be very busy, um, but for that not to burn you out because it's coming from a different, it's coming from a different place, and it's all aligned, natural, natural action. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the really because it isn't about. I often have conversations with a particular friend um, about Nelson Mandela, and you know, kind of just the extent of what he was doing and the, the motivation that he had to do what he he did. And, you know, how it's just, you know, if that's not, if that's coming from a place of extreme effort, then you would just, it would just be impossible. You know, that 
it's like the deeper you go into that, the more responsibility you can take for doing more in a way. And it's not about doing less in the world. It's about actually doing oftentimes more in the world, but in a more natural, efficient way. Yeah. Gandhi might be an example. I mean, passive, you know, nonviolence and passive resistance. Just, uh, you know, rather than take up arms against the British, in, you know, or did all kinds of things in a more passive way and uh, got this major power, far, far more powerful than, than, you know, the Indian resistance movement to leave the country. Right. <laughs> you know? Go to the sea and and make salt, you know, in, in order not to pay the tax and 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 you know one thing after another in that way. Uh, anyway, it makes the point. Yeah, another question came in. This is from um, Miroslav Maklinov from Kirchner, Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. How have your experiences changed in your work with your clients since your awakening? Do you see the difference in how your clients are responding to your new point of view? Do I see a way they're responding to my new point of view? I mean, you're sort of working differently with them than you used to, but... um, Yeah, I was really kind of working on different things a lot of the time. So before, a lot of my conversations were, what do you want to do with your life and let's make that happen type stuff. You know, it was that, it was that sort of stuff. And now, or I guess what I love the most is sitting with people who are more in a therapeutic way. So things like anxiety, eating disorders, that feeling of shame being wrong. Um, So I find it hard to compare because I feel like they're just two totally separate things for me. But the way in which I work is definitely completely different. I feel like I just... It's so much more about just being creating a space for people without any judgment to explore rather than feeling like you've got to find steps for people to take and things for them to do and to become the person in the world that they want to be. And that whole conversation, it just doesn't feel relevant or true for me anymore. So it's often now more about just a loving space of acceptance for people. Good. You wrote some nice poems and you speak of your own personal experience about romantic relationships as a source of spiritual growth and healing. And <laughs> like, here's, a, here's a quote from one of your blog posts. You say, one of the traps of the spiritual path is to tell ourselves that because we're pure consciousness, we shouldn't feel sad or we should be able to get over things more quickly. True spirituality is a welcoming of the full spectrum of our tender emotions, whilst also knowing that the truth of who we are is the space in which all those things appear. I guess that quote doesn't directly relate to romantic relationships, but it can. But then you also wrote another one, I remember, where you talked about how it's kind of like hearts are made to be broken and healed and broken and healed. And so you're encouraging people to just sort of not put the brakes on and just enjoy, open their hearts and let them be vulnerable. And even if they end up getting broken, they'll they'll heal. I can feel myself getting a little bit sweaty now because I've written those really recently in response to a new relationship that I've just entered into. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, this feeling of just wanting to be very open and to not have to hide bits of ourselves and to for it to be okay to feel all of those feelings and not to make it wrong. Or I mean, I've definitely been through 
times on this path of feeling well because I'm spiritual and because I'm this then it's not okay to feel sad or it's not okay to say this or it's not okay to disagree and so kind of a letting go of all of that as well and that's a journey for me I feel like at the moment as well um, in this new context of a romantic relationship is allowing all of that to be okay and not suppressing that because I'm spiritual and so since your awakening is this your first relationship that you've gotten into since the 2016 thing there was one of the short short ish so this is the this is the second and you feel like it has a very different quality or orientation than the pre-awakening ones did yeah for sure i definitely definitely feel like that and I've thought about it a lot recently for obvious reasons and wondered whether part of it is just maturity or how much of it is related to spiritual awakening versus just you know growing up a bit maybe some of both some of both I think the biggest thing is that all of the things in previous relationships where there was an opportunity to take everything personally and to fly off the handle get upset you know, all of those little things that happen that someone says or doesn't say, there's much less taking things personally. Or if I take something personally, then I see that I've taken it personally and I realize that I don't need to. And also just kind of tired of entering into the drama, actually. I just feel when things come up, it's released very quickly because I, I don't have the energy for the drama. Sounds good. I presume your partner is uh, kind of has a similar orientation, spiritual interest and stuff. Yeah, he's interested, yeah. Good. Here's a nice little thing you wrote, kind of a poem. I, I thought this might be worth reading and hmm. to have you elaborate on it. He said, I will not call myself lucky for walking with the sun and bedding down with the moon. I will instead shriek the madness of the world from my bed until we have all become lucky. And lucky has become normal. And normal has been remembered as the natural way of things. I like that. Mm, I like that too. I don't remember where that came from. From you. (laughs) (laughs) You wrote that unless you plagiarized. (laughs) I like that one too. Um, (laughs) Can you read it again? Sure. I will not call myself lucky for walking with the sun and bedding down with the moon. I will instead shriek the madness of the world from my bed until we have all become lucky, and lucky has become normal, and normal has been remembered as the natural way of things. Oh, yeah, I remember more now. So I don't have blinds in my apartment, and because I you know, work primarily for myself with this one day a week at the the gallery, I'm able to wake up. I move with the seasons really at the moment. So I wake up at the moment at half past four or something like that and find myself wanting to go to, to bed when it gets dark now. And I think I wrote that around that feeling of, we think of that as really lucky. And on the one hand, I see how fortunate I am to be able to behave in that way And yet, at the same time, I wish that wasn't fortunate, you know, to be forcing ourselves in the middle of winter to get up at 5, 6 a.m. to then commute to 
these offices or or whatever and then return and that that's normal and that you know someone in my position is is the lucky one it seems skewed it seems skewed to me I think that's where that came from yeah what I read into it also was that the definition of normal in our society is really pretty bleak it's really pretty subnormal by comparison with what's possible and if everyone were fully blossomed in terms of what we're potentially able to be, then even some of the more successful people in our world would seem really stunted by comparison. And you're talking about kind of a higher normality, I think, as possible, and as eventually, hopefully, becoming the norm in the world. I've always thought that way, that it's like if if it's true that we use only like a small percentage of our full potential or something like the 5% or whatever, then imagine what the world would be like if everyone were using 75 or 90 or 100. Pretty much everything would be impacted profoundly. Right. Yeah. Oh, I love what you read into that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's kind of what, what I read into it. It's nice to hear other people's reactions to what you write because, I mean, like I said before we started speaking, I think I don't even remember what I've written really, so... But you do write about that kind of thing. Like, here's another one. There was an essay called Who Am I to Do That for the Brilliant Ones Flying Just Below the Radar. And you talk about purpose and calling and following your heart. And Emerson or Thoreau, I think maybe Thoreau said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And so I think they do because everyone has such tremendous potential. And for the most part, it's like stifled and clamped down by you know, all the crud that we've taken on over how many uh, lifetimes, I don't know. And the society uh, keeps on even more. So naturally we feel frustrated. We're like a, a race car stuck in a traffic jam, potentially able to drive so fast, and yet sitting there idling most of the time. I think that the whole spiritual enterprise is not, a, is not only a matter of enabling each individual to sort of gain some kind of inner freedom, but it will actually result in the expression of much more potential in the way we interact with the world, you know, much more sort of expressions of greatness. And if you consider many, many individuals undergoing such a transformation, pretty much all the problems that we're bemoaning in the world today could really dissipate. And, you know, we could have a society that's far beyond anything that most people imagine possible. Yeah. Yeah, that word frustration that you said, sensing that you're a race car, but living as... I don't know. <laughs> I'm not very good with cars. Whatever, <laughs> really slow, awful car. Well, you've be. probably been stuck in a traffic jam. I don't know if you have those in the UK, but London yeah, traffic at rush hour, let's say. Yeah, London traffic at rush hour. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think you're right. I wonder if we've covered this. I think we kind of have, but maybe it would be worth touching on. He said, um, you know, discussing life purpose, he said, it could be an interesting area to cover as the question, What am I here for is one that has plagued you for a good portion of your life and probably plagues a lot of people. How do people know what their life purpose is? (laughs) I'll start with a bit of background, shall I? I really feel like that question, maybe people, when they come onto a spiritual path, there's maybe we all have a different version of the question, maybe that kind of is the driver. For me, if I had to pick a question, it would be, what am I here for? It feels like it's been the driver behind so much of my seeking, you know, this desperate, like really desperation and obsession and pain around what am I here to do? Because 
working in an office in London just felt so painful to me. And then even when I'd started, you know, working with clients in the different capacity, that question still, it was still there. It still plagued me all of the time, even though I was, you know, I had kind of time freedom and location freedom and I had many of the things that I thought I was looking for. But that question about what am I here for still plagued me. And it wasn't until that experience with Liberation Unleashed and then what happened afterwards that there was a relaxation around that because it really felt so clear that primarily my purpose was to have that realization. That was that was first and foremost. And then after that, like you've been talking about, at some point, although there may be kind of periods of not knowing what on earth and you're, you know, you've got no drive or motivation, at some point there's more aligned action that starts to come in. And then that's the, you know, the expression of, of that first purpose of realizing the truth of who you are. And then there's an expression of that or many expressions of that, however it works for you. Well, I mean, what comes to mind as you've said that is like the Indian idea of dharma, you know, um, which is sometimes translated as that activity, which is most evolutionary for a purpose for a person to be performing. And it's thought that different people have different dharmas and and the same person will have different dharmas throughout life. So you might have a student dharma for a while and then a, a householder dharma where you're raising kids and you might need to have a regular job doing something to support your family. And that's that's there's nothing wrong with that, even though you're not like prime minister or great scientist or Ludwig van Beethoven or something. You're just sort of doing something that's in keeping with your dharma. And later on, your dharma may change yet again. Obviously, people want to be doing something gratifying. They don't want to. I mean, we get these robo calls. I don't know if you have that over there, where the phone rings and it's some guy trying to sell you life insurance or a vacation plan or something. And I, I'm tent- maybe next time one of them calls, I'm going to say, you know, how do you feel at the end of the day when you go home? Do you feel like you <laughs> that was a, a day worth living, or could you find something more meaningful to do than hassling people all day long? We want something meaningful in life. We want something. We want our life to amount to something. We want to make a contribution. And there are so many different ways in which that can be done. And I think the deeper you go in terms of attunement with your true nature, the more that will fall into place. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. My experience is that I know for myself the things that I'm really called to. And I know that writing is one of those. I just, you know, writing is one of those things that when I do it, I feel... I feel stronger, I feel more energized, I feel, you know, everything about it feels right to me. And I think, you know, with exploration or just, you know, knowing yourself that we all have those things in completely different ways. And there was one other thing that came up while you were speaking about life purpose and you said, you know, maybe you're not prime minister or whatever and I wanted to just say as well that one of my experiences through this is that I always had this feeling of needing to become someone and be something and do something important, you know, to be special. I really, that was very strong for me. I need to prove myself. I really need to become someone. And that has been something that's dropped away. And that was difficult. That was challenging as well, because that had been so strong for me. I have to become somebody, something, you know, and all the effort and pushing behind that. And yet, again, the paradox is that you know, when that is let go of, you let go of that and you find yourself on Buddha at the gas pump and it's so strange. Yeah. 
In your case, I would recommend waiting until the whole Brexit thing is settled before becoming prime minister, you know, because who would want to deal with that? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so just, you know, a few years down the line, you can... <laughs> A question came in from someone who could answer this in French, but we'll have you do it in English. Jean-Francois from Paris asks, said, I've been going through Kundalini awakening for several years. My spiritual practice has been steady, going through Kriyas, Mudras, vocalizations, etc. But I experienced some sort of depression, feeling like I'm not in the right place, the right path, disconnected from the regular mindset or frame of society. I'm lonely, but aspire to be among loving people. I'm not interested in my career. This pertains to stuff we've been saying. Yet feel I have a deeper purpose. I have no idea what it could be. I want to get out of this stupefaction and act. But I have no direction, and the world around me seems to be so robotic, dull, and fairly stupid. Have you experienced your process in the same way, and how did you manage to blossom into awakening? I think Jean-Francois could be a writer. That's very nicely written. Well, I don't know anything about Kundalini, really, and Kriyas and all of those things. I don't know. I don't know is the answer, except it's going to sound so awful because, you know, when someone's looking for an answer and and they're suffering, but to come back to that piece on trust and only be, only because looking at my own experience you know having been through you know what is it what should i do depressed i don't want to be here but i don't know what and yet somehow life keeps moving i could help i could give a little something here i've gone through kundalini okay. stuff like that and i would say that something really good is happening first of all and it's good that you understand it um, don't fight it or, or anything and don't try to accelerate it, but don't try to depress it or, or stop it either. But something good is happening. And I think that as you go along, you're going to find that, you know, the process gets more and more cleared out and a lot more, there'll be a lot more inner bliss and a lot more awareness. And um, you'll tend in the direction of, uh, of having things go smooth more smoothly for you and it's a, it's a, it's a sign that of you know a fairly significant degree of spiritual progress having been made i think for one to be consciously going through a kundalini awakening like that and sometimes it can be kind of hairy you know and so difficult and intense and, and even scary if you don't know what's happening but you seem to know what's happening and uh so there's a lot of a lot of bliss deep within us, and if the, if there's some depression at times, perhaps that's just something in the heart being cleared out, and the bliss will, in in the end, the bliss will be bubbling, and <laughs> life will be quite fulfilling. Uh, can't promise that, but I think that that you know, it's a fairly safe prediction. It was great that you were able to jump in there, and I just was going to say that it's so brilliant that you know. Jean-Francois, he's in Paris and he's writing in with this experience of awakening. And then how many hundreds of people in all areas of the world are going, you know, through something similar and it can feel so lonely and 
And there are many, many, many of us going through similar experiences. Um, and I just had that real feeling just thinking of him, you know, at home at his computer or wherever he is, you know, typing in this thing to that gap. And here we are. It's just, I find that, I find that incredible, actually. Yeah, it's nice that we have this technology that allows us to have an extended family of, and, of friends all over the world, you know. Um, yeah. it's, it's really sweet. It's, it's been wonderful for me just getting to know all these beautiful people and f- establishing friendships I never would have had. Um, so you're not alone, uh, Jean, or what was his yeah. name? Francois. Jean-Francois. It's like, and, you know, and as George Harrison said in the title of one of his albums, this too shall pass. <laughs> so <laughs> you're not going to starve to death. You just kind of keep going along and things will change for the better. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it can be so challenging. Yeah, it can be challenging. And sometimes a lot is thrown at us. I was just talking to an old friend yesterday and she said, boy, sometimes I just walk out my door and, it's like the world just hits me like a ton of bricks, and I and she's somebody who's been meditating for decades. But yeah, you know, sometimes, what is that saying? Um, for those to whom much will, has been given, much will be asked, or something like that. Some people also say it sounds like a cliche, but some people say God doesn't give us more than we can deal with, and uh, whatever we, whatever is being dished out is. Uh, as you and I started this whole conversation by saying, is if if we t- really take the big picture view, is very likely in our best interest, and that might be seem kind of harsh if you consider things like the Holocaust or something. But there have actually been people who went through that who wrote a book. As an Eddie Hillison, I think was the lady's name, who was in Auschwitz or someplace and had all this profound celestial experience, and she was, you know, having seeing all these subtle mechanics of things and cognitions. I mean. You know, if if we don't want to say that the universe is meaningless and mechanical and capricious and arbitrary and cruel, if we do want to say that there is some kind of divine orchestration to the whole thing that has a, a higher purpose in the long run, then we kind of have to come to terms with horrific situations like that and try to put them in some kind of context. And, you know, without being sort of too know-it-all-ish about it, um, it's it's good to ponder these these ideas. Mm-hmm. Here's a question from um, Dennis Stachura from Mesquite, which is in Arizona. Mm-hmm. I it's, recognize that name, too. You know that name? Okay, <laughs> you got all your fans on here. <laughs> <laughs> um, he said, I recently wrote this in my journal. We are so caught up in the temporal that we fail to see the eternal that we are. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just that that feels very, very true, that a lot of the time we're caught up in the day-to-day personal feelings of what it is to be me and this body and all the things that are happening to us and totally lose sight of the stillness and the you know the stillness and the silence of of what's beneath everything and I guess that is suffering isn't it to be caught up in that 100% of the title you know nearly all of the time and not to have any space where there's a recognition that there's something else. So, I mean, just that that feels like a very true thing to write. Yeah. And I would say do what you can to build up the stillness, to, you know, to build up the buffer. Um, spiritual practice, anything that works for you, 
you know, it's like if we think of it as a financial metaphor, let's say you you have 10 bucks in your bank account, you're going to be really rocked by any expenditure that you might encounter, you know, but if you have a million in the, in the account, then, you know, you can gain and lose fairly significant amounts and it doesn't make much difference. So, you know, we want to sort of amass that spiritual bank account, so to speak, um, and to develop an inner strength that enables us to sort of deal with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Yeah. And spiritual practice is an interesting conversation as well for me personally, because I feel like, you know, I've been through many things, um, including in the early days, you know, transcendental meditation. And and I really don't do very much now. And sometimes I have that feeling of, oh, bad, bad spiritual person. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I feel like my practice extends to, I mean, I love being quiet, but I don't like to call it meditation for some reason. I just like being quiet. I really like the silence. I feel like all of the practices even were getting in my way. Yeah. I mean, it could all completely change again. But at the moment, there isn't very much. Yeah. I used to be a TM teacher, as people know, and I have been meditating regularly for over 50 years. And that worked for me, but I would be the last person to say that everyone should do that or that's going to work for everybody. If I thought that, probably I wouldn't be doing this show in which I introduce people who are all over the map in terms of different advice and and whatnot. But, you know, you just find what really works for you and maybe experiment a while until you find that thing. If something doesn't work, try something else. I mean, you don't want to be a dilettante. Just they say dig one deep hole rather than 10 small ones if you want to strike water. But... Nonetheless, maybe you're digging and it's, you realize there's not going to be any water here, you know, <laughs> so you better yeah. go and start a new one. I love that you said that about the, the digging one deep hole instead of uh, 10 shallow ones or whatever yeah, the wording yeah. was, because I recently heard an interview with Mirabai Starr, who I know that you've mm-hmm. interviewed previously, yeah. and um, it was an interview with her on Sounds True, and she was talking about how that just didn't feel, that all of the conversations that she'd been around were about dig this one deep hole and do it properly and, right. you know, ignore the rest. But that, that just wasn't, that wasn't the way for her. And I loved hearing her say that because again, it's like, none of us really know. Like, it's just what calls to you, what speaks to you, trust that. At least that's my. She gave a talk at the sand conference a few years ago that was entitled something like butterflies in the garden or something where the butterfly flits from flower to flower and derives some benefit from each flower rather than just staying staying on one flower the whole time. Yeah. It just goes to show, I think, that there are just infinite ways of doing this, seeing this, and that there isn't a, you know, there isn't one, there isn't one, like you say, you wouldn't be here if you thought there was one right way. Yeah. I remember seeing a cartoon once of a a Nazi selling ice cream and he was like, vanilla only. (laughs) (laughs) This is the only flavor. Oh, no, that would be terrible for me. <laughs> yeah. Dan told me to read this note for me after the interview, but I think I'll share this because it looks sweet. <laughs> he, he said, um, thank you for reading out his paradox points. He said, I loved Leah's reaction to some of them. It seemed clear that she had an experience of these and it felt, and felt similar to me, especially on the first two. She described exactly as I feel on these. He said, I think the existence of paradox on every dimension and aspect of life is the reason that Buddha advocated a middle way. The middle way is the way to handle all the paradoxes in life, even the simple practical ones, but right up to the spiritual ones. 
Love that. Yeah. I love Dan. <laughs> Next time you get down to London, you and Dan ought to get together for a tea. Yeah. yeah. Let's do that, Dan. He's a great, great guy. Okay, so let's see. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to cover before we wrap it up? There's one here, meeting our pain. I don't know if... Here's a few little tidbits. Meeting our pain, awakening, and the falling away of all you knew. Feeling good is good, but there's wisdom in the darkness. You want to touch on any of those? Mm, That last one is a fairly recent one. I think that came from... I've been listening to a lot of Trevor Hall recently. I don't know if you know him. He's a musician. Oh, Trevor Hall. No, you mentioned him. I was thinking of Trevor Noah, who who, that guy from South Africa who took over the the Daily Show. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) No, um, he's a musician um, called Trevor Hall, and I just absolutely love his music. That piece that I wrote about feeling good is good, but there's wisdom in the sadness, I think sprung from one of his lyrics or something. And thinking about that now, it's this kind of, not kind of making it about feeling good all the time. We want to feel good all the time and then kind of dismiss everything else. But that there's something important to be found or in any feeling, if we really meet any feeling, then we can discover something, you know, true. If we're dismissing things and avoiding things, then it's very difficult to discover what's really true. Yeah. And I've just found personally to sit with emotions that come up, a very useful thing to do, you know, related to things like eating disorders and all the rest of it, because all of that is, you know, about running away from all of those things. And that there's, yeah, intelligence in all of it. Yeah, meeting our pain. I mean, in an ordinary sense, pain is a warning signal that we better stop doing something, like hand on the stove, you know. If we didn't feel pain, we could really seriously injure ourselves. So it, it helps us. But after we take our hand off the stove, it might still hurt. So why is that? Because we've already taken our hand off the stove. Well, attention is being drawn to an area that needs healing. So the attention has a healing value. And obviously we, you know, we want a certain drugs for people in severe pain. But what your, your point is that very often allowing ourselves to deeply feel something rather than stifling or avoiding it will facilitate true healing of it once and for all. That's my experience. That's my experience. Yeah. Okay. I think we touched upon it a little bit in the beginning, but how do you work with people? Let's say that somebody's listening to this and they think, oh, I'd like to have a chat with Leah and, uh, you know, see where, where it goes. Um, what would people do? How do they get in touch with you? If they do work with you, what should they expect? Things like that. Yeah, yeah, we did touch on it a little bit in the beginning. And one of the things that I said is that I feel like it's still, and I said to Irene when we set this interview up, that it's, it's kind of moving a lot at the moment. So one of the ways that I work with people privately is over a three-month period at the moment and um, doing a session, three sessions a month. And that could be on something like disordered eating or anxiety or depression or, or more specifically talking about the spiritual path if that's what they wanted. In the past, I've offered single sessions, which is something that I'm considering again. I never know. I never know how useful that is or whether it's what people want, but that's a possibility as well. 
And if people want to get in touch with me, then the best thing is just to go to my website and contact details are on there. They can subscribe from there. They're very welcome to email me. Okay. And I'll be uh, linking to that from your page on batgap.com. It's leahmarjoriecox.com, but I'll, I'll link to it. That'd be easier than figuring out how to spell all that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Alrighty. Well, it's been nice talking to you. Any closing thoughts or anything? The experience of being here kind of encapsulates the whole thing for me. Being where? Being here with you. Oh, with me. Okay. As opposed to just being on the planet. As opposed to just being on the planet. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I mean, that's well, but, you know, being here with you in this moment. I just have no idea where life is going. And for me to think that I have an idea of what's best, it just seems completely ridiculous to me because... I don't understand how I'm here talking to you. And so I guess that just makes me think for everybody, just, just trust, just trust life, just life. Yeah. I think that's particularly important now because I think that I've said this before and I don't mean to sound apocalyptic, but I think things are going to get a little crazy in the world for a while if they're not already. And um, if you don't have that sort of deeper perspective on things that we've been touching upon here that spirituality helps to culture then it could be very scary and one might feel that all hell is breaking loose but i think if we can sort of anchor ourselves in that deeper value then we'll take the changes that are the coming changes in stride and uh, even you know flourish amidst potential chaos yeah beautiful good all right. Well, thanks, Leah. Thank you. It's been so lovely to chat to you. Thanks, yeah, Rick. Lovely to chat to you. If I ever go over to the UK, I'll get in touch. Please do. Yeah, I'll give you a tour around the Lake District. I haven't been there in ages. <laughs> I was at um, Keele University one time many years ago, yeah. starting a TM teacher training course for a couple of weeks. And then I went down to London for a night or two and then went back to Switzerland, I guess, which is where I was at the time. But okay. I like being there. It didn't rain the whole time I was there. That is amazing. I know. Um, yeah, the Lake District is a very wet place, but it is so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well, thanks to those who've been listening or watching. If this is new to you, then, you know, this is an ongoing series. And if you'd like to be notified of future ones, subscribe to the YouTube channel and or subscribe to the little email notification thing that we have on batgap.com. And I'll send out an email. I do send out an email every time I post a new interview. So you can be notified. And subscribe to the podcast. And if you feel like it, I think Apple's going to change things around pretty soon. I think I heard they're getting rid of iTunes. I'm not sure what's going to take its place. But uh, it's helpful for the podcast to actually leave a little review. Give it five stars if you feel like it. It somehow boosts the, the podcast up higher and brings it to the attention of more people. So that's a way of supporting it if you feel like doing that. So thank you very much. And thanks again, Leah. And we'll see everybody next time. Thanks, Rick. You're welcome.